This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm Tim Marlow. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's a great privilege to be presenting Julian Barnes to you, who at various times in his life has been a lexicographer for the OED, uh, television reviewer, book reviewer, of course, literary editor of the New Statesman, but of course, fundamentally, he's one of the most illustrious published writers in Britain. Uh, a man who's been nominated for the Booker four times, finally won it, not before time, in 2011, um, but also has published seven books of non-fiction, the latest of which is this, and it's this that we're going to be discussing. Um, Julian's literary career, well, I suppose his first, he, he was published in 1980 with Metroland, but I suppose for the purposes of this talk, the momentous event happened in uh, 1989, as the Berlin Wall came down, uh, Julian published uh, History of the World in ten and a half chapters. In that book, uh, among many other uh, great pieces, there was a, uh, an essay on, a section on, um, Jericho's Raft of the Medusa. That's the opening chapter here in the book. So I suppose you could say that art criticism's gain happened in uh, 1989. Um, he was also off, uh, awarded the, um, the uh, commander of the Order of, of, of Arts and Letters in France. I mention that because his love affair with art is very French. And in this book, um, starting with Jericho, we go through, I can just about remember it, but anyway, go through, well, I remember everything in the book, but I can remember the, 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 right, the, the, the painters, I'm on my metal. No list. We go Delacroix, uh, we get Jericho Delacroix, Manet, Cézanne, Fantin Latour, Vuillard, Bonnard, Valentin, Braque. Um, then we have a little sort of interlude to Belgium, which almost is French, because Magritte was in France. Uh, then um, Oldenburg, uh, Freud, Hodgkin, and a very curious and I think quite important essay about the status of art with a little nod to Ron Muick and uh, Paul Richet. Now, Julian's beginnings as a, a love of art is going to be the starting point of our talk. And uh, I want to interrogate a little later on about his own personal taste. But rather than ask him where that began, um, I'm going to ask him if he'd read from the beginning of the book and explore where that love affair or where that interest uh, was first peaked. Julian. Thank you. Um, I, <laughs> thank you for that kind reference to the Berlin Wall as well, which <laughs> makes my, um, my work more world important at a stroke. Um, I didn't have any art education at school. Uh, I went to a sort of school where art was taught on a Saturday morning and I was always playing rugby or cricket on those occasions. I think my parents took me to the National Gallery once. They must have done because I was doing, I used to do those I Spy books. Are you too young to remember those or not? But you filled up, you filled up little I Spy books and then you sent off your uh, book to Big Chief I Spy who, who sent you a feather uh, from a, a Native American headdress in theory. Um, and so I think I probably went to the National Gallery in order to spot a picture, but I don't remember that. I do remember going to um, the Wallace Collection to s and, and was stood in front of Franz Hall's The Laughing Cavalier, which I thought was a very silly picture because I couldn't see what he was laughing at. You know, he just had, he just had a ridiculous smirk on his face. And so I was rather put off art. Um, I f fortunately, it was never forced down my throat, um, which would have put me off a lot more. And it wasn't really until I was 18 and I was spending a few weeks in Paris between school and university that I went to a museum which I chose to go to myself. 
Um, and it was an obscure museum. It was the Gustav Moreau Museum. Um, and so I'll read about that, and that slightly leads into the sort of um, taste I had as, a, as someone discovering painting um, at, at just as he was becoming uh, sort of intellectually mature. And though I must have gone to the Louvre, it was a large, dark, unfashionable museum that made the most impression on me perhaps because there was no one else there, so I felt no emulative pressure to respond in a particular way. The Musée Gustave Moreau, near the Gare Saint-Lazare, had been left to the French state on the painter's death in 1898, and, from its gloom and grubbiness, seemed to have been rather grudgingly kept up thereafter. Upstairs was Moreau's huge high barn of a studio, underheated by a chunky black stove which had probably been going since the artist's time. Badly lit paintings were hung from floor to ceiling, while large wooden chests contained thin drawers you could pull out to examine hundreds of preliminary drawings. I had never knowingly seen a picture by Moreau before and knew nothing about him let alone the fact that he was the only contemporary painter wholeheartedly admired by Flaubert. I was uncertain what to make of such work, exotic, bejeweled, and darkly glittering, with an odd mixture of private and public symbolism, little of which I could unscramble. Perhaps it was this mysteriousness that attracted me, and perhaps I admired Moreau the more because nobody told me to do so. But it was certainly here that I remember myself for the first time consciously looking at pictures rather than being passively and obediently in their presence. And I also liked Moreau because he was so odd. At this early stage of my looking, I was attracted to art that was as transformative as possible. <coughs> Indeed, I thought this was what art was. You took life and turned it by some charismatic secret process into something else related to life, but stronger, more intense, and preferably weirder. Among the painters of the past, I was drawn to the likes of El Greco and Tintoretto for their liquid elongations of form, to Bosch and Bruegel for their fantastical imaginings, Archimboldo for his witty emblematic constructions. Among the painters of the 20th century, the modernists anyway, I was pretty much thrilled by all of them, as long as they turned dull reality into cubes and slicings, into visceral worlds, intense sploshings, brainy grids, and enigmatic constructions. Had I known Apollinaire as more than a modernist, therefore admirable, poet, I would have approved his praise of cubism for being a noble and necessary reaction against contemporary frivolity. As for the wider, longer history of painting, of course I could see that Dürer and Memling and Mantegna were brilliant, but I tended to feel that realism was a kind of default setting for art. This was a normal and normally romantic approach. It took me a lot of looking before I understood that realism, far from being just a base camp for high-altitude adventure by others, could be just as truthful and even just as strange that it too involved choice, organization, and imagination. So in its own way, might be equally transformative. I was also slowly to learn that there were painters whom you grew out of. Is that the answer to the question? <laughs> that I, I was also slowly to learn that there were painters whom you grew out of, like the Pre-Raphaelites, painters you grew into, 
Chardin. Painters towards whom you had a lifelong sighing indifference, Greuze. Painters you suddenly became aware of after years of unnoticing, Leotard, currently on show at the Scottish National Gallery, do not miss. And, and at the Royal Academy next October. And at the, yeah, but immediately at the Scottish <laughs> National Gallery. Um, I'll do the ads. Hammershoy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Cassatt, Valeton. Painters assuredly great, but to whom your response was always a bit negligent, Rubens. And painters who would, whatever age you were, remain persistently, indomitably great, Piero, Rembrandt, Degas. And then, perhaps the slowest advance of all, I permitted myself to believe, or rather see, that not all modernism was entirely wonderful, that some parts of it were better than others, that maybe Picasso could be vainglorious, Miro and Clay could be twee, Leger could be repetitive, and so on. I eventually came to realize that modernism had strengths and weaknesses and a built-in obsolescence, just like all other art movements, which, as it happens, made it more rather than less interesting. So without giving anything away, when you return to the Gustave Moreau Museum 50 years later, yeah. um, it's not quite as you remember. It wasn't quite as I remember. Um, it, it, I had remembered that there was, he had this enormous, he designed the studio, the whole house himself. He was fantastically successful, made a lot of money, and he built himself two enormous studios, one on top of the other, with a, uh, a wrought iron uh, spiral staircase between the two of them. Um, the old, that old stove, which had been going since his day, when I was there in 1964, had been decommissioned, but actually turned into a sort of decorative object, almost an art object in the side. Um, I was amazed how small the living quarters were. Um, and then, of course, there was the art. And, and part of me was quite impressed that I hadn't run away when I was 18, because I could imagine it being very off-putting art to an 18-year-old. And I, I really made myself stay there for as long as I could, because I thought, I've been looking at pictures for 50 years. I must be able to get more out of this stuff than I did at 18. But sometimes, you know, it's like when you, when you pick up a book that you did for A-level, um, and it's got notes down the side and lots of underlinings, and it says, irony, you know? Um, uh, or prolepsis, a word you've just learnt, you see? Oh, that's um, exactly actually, what I've done in your book. When you, when you go back to that text, you weren't far out, you know? It was a good use of irony. It was proleptic. The lines you underlined are quite important in the novel. And so you think, oh dear, I've lived all these extra years and, and I'm not getting more than 5% extra out of the book. So, uh, with the Gustav Moro Museum, I went round and I felt I knew more about art. I was more interested in the technique. I loved the way that in some of his pictures he does a sort of um, black ink outline around the edges of certain shapes and characters. Um, but it really failed to move me. It really, um, it felt like bookish art. It felt like art that came out of him reading um, the history of mythology. And now it had gone back into being bookish art in the sense of art that produced books and theses. But it, I felt it never had a, the necessary intermediate stage, which is of 
of roaring vital health which, uh, and an immediacy of response from, a, from an audience being there. Um, so uh, from that you might think that I hadn't made much progress in 50 years or it might have been just a lucky strike when I was 18 that I got it right. You, you quote Flaubert at the beginning in the introduction and, and also yeah. one of the essays who says that it's, I think paraphrasing, he says it's monstrous to think that you can make sense of one art form via another. Obviously yes. this book is an attempt, I'd say living proof that that is wrong, uh, that writers can write wonderfully about, about art and I suppose that, that um, art can, in, in, sorry, that writing can also inspire uh, paintings, maybe we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, yeah. but I, well, uh, people uh, yes, might I, think, though, that your interests in art would be predominantly literary. Um, I, I don't get that feeling from here. No, do you, do, do no, you distinguish no. very strongly in the way that you approach or immerse yourself in literature and art? Does art feel like a kind of relief or release, or is that too simplistic? Um, no, I, it's, a, it's a parallel uh, great art, which has some overlappings. Um, I don't, uh, it, it's interesting, I don't on the whole much like narrative art. Um, I, I love sort of um, early Renaissance um, paintings where you get the whole story of a saint's life or of the crucifixion all in one picture. So there, there's Christ being arrested at the bottom, then he's trudging his way to Calvary and then he's crucified up there. I think that, I, I, I love that. But... Um, Paintings which sort of try to tell a story, I mean, I mean, leaving aside, you know, the one great story that most Western paintings were about for so many years, that of the life of Christ and so on. Um, when you get sort of, say, 19th century stories which try to, uh, pictures which try to tell a story and also make a moral, I find them kind of repugnant, you know, the awakening conscience, the mistress sitting on the lover's lap and rising um, and in the background, if I remember rightly, there's a sort of bird in a cage. There are an awful lot of, an awful lot of caged birds in, uh, with women in the foreground in 19th century art. Um, and so so the val there's a Valaton uh, work called The Lie, which yes. is open yes. to literary interpretation, yes. but it's yes. the ambivalence about it that you seem to have liked, and although yes. your students, your creative writing students, yes. Um, yes. had different opinions. Yes, I mean, I'm... I'm it's a different sort of narrative. I like enigmatic narrative. I like looking at a Georgianian thinking, what on earth is going on? Did, did they understand when they first saw it who this character sitting under the tree is? Um, uh, I, I like... I like um, but that may be a, a narrative mystery that's grown up through the centuries. Um, I'm a great uh, admirer of, of Howard Hodgkin's uh, work. And, and Hodgkin gives... Is a tremendous tease, apart from anything else. He gives you titles which make you think you're going to identify a narrative in the picture. Um, you know, in bed in Venice, for example. And then you think, well, where's Venice? And where's the bed? That sort of thing. But that's because he gives titles to put what are essentially pictures of an emotional state and therefore not narrative in that sense. I think perhaps the, mo the, the painter who most does narrative, as you're suggesting, is Valaton, um, a wonderful Swiss painter, um, friend of, fellow Nabi, friend of, of Vuillard and Bonnard. Um, and he was a great woodcut artist as well. And he did a series of paintings and then also of um, woodcuts, which are called Antimite. And they're about 
the, 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 the paradoxes, the hidden violence, um, and the ambiguities of the emotional life. Um, and there's one, uh, the first painting of his I saw, and this on the back of this amazingly well-priced volume, um, <laughs> is, 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 is a little excerpt, it's a little bit of a, of a painting he wrote called, a painting he wrote, well, he did in a way write a painting, called The Lie. And it has um, a, a complacent looking man in black uh, and sitting very close to him is a rounded female figure. And um, I read it uh, in one way. Um, and it's not so long ago that I wrote the piece. I can't remember which way round I, 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 I read it. I think I read it that he was lying to her because I think... No, I thought she was lying to him. That's it. thought she was lying to him. I thought she was saying something like, yes, the child is yours, or of course I love you. And um, I saw this picture in uh, Baltimore where I was teaching at Johns Hopkins for a semester. And as it was about narrative, um, I, I said to my students, go and look at this picture and tell me, this is what I think it means. Um, the smartest of my students, who is a Canadian novelist called Kate Stearns, um, came back and said, maestro, which is what they ironically used to call me. <laughs> Because I said, you can't call me by my Christian name, but you can't call me Mr. Barnes, so come up with something. So I said, maestro. I said, okay, as long as you use it ironically. I said, sure we will. Um, so she, and she said, maestro, um, you got it completely wrong. You know, it's the man who's lying to the woman. You know, he's saying, of course I love you, and of course we'll get married, and things like that. And then someone else said, well, actually, I think you're both wrong. Um, it's a portrayal of the sort of social lie that bourgeois marriage um, makes necessary. And I thought that was very smart too. Um, but uh, if you look at the picture, it is, it's, it's irresolvable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, and he is, uh, Valentin is a sort of painter of the enigmatic narrative anyway. Um, it's not just the paintings which have people in. Um, he does, he does wonderful landscapes. The, 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 his, his landscapes of the 10s and 20s um, are, are wonderful, and they're put together. They're, they're paysage composé. That's to say, he went out with his sketchbook, and he'd, he'd make notes and sketches of different landscapes, and then he'd put them all together in the studio. So they've come from different parts. And that gives them a, a strangeness. You, it's they slightly float free of reality. And so, if you can say that uh, a, a landscape can be an enigmatic narrative, that's what his are. Um, and I think they're wonderful. And I think there should be a show of him in Britain quite soon. Which there will be at the Royal Academy. <laughs> but you do the plugs. But given that you're going to curate it, then that's a joint plug. Um, um, I'm interested in this, this notion of uh, pictorial ambiguity and, and yes. cultural ambiguity because one of the things that emerges very clearly in, you know your own pers personal taste y you seem to enjoy the speculation but you make I think very eloquently the point that works of art change meaning by definition over a lifetime let alone o over uh, generations or centuries and I'm curious well I'd like to interrogate that but mm. you mentioned mm. Howard Hodgkin and mm. of course Hodgkin is, in some ways, a very enigmatic painter, although he gives you a literal clue. Mm, he's an mm, enigmatic mm, painter. Mm. But, of course, 
he's the one artist you write about who you know personally and know very yes. well. Yes, um, yes. Does that make a fundamental difference in the way that you write about his work? Do you think you are, I don't want to say compromise, but you cannot not be personally invested in him and his work. And often you've been there, and you've been involved in the memory that he later intensely tries to recollect. Yes. Um, in fact, that makes, made it the hardest piece to write of all, I think. But then I think he's a very, he's a very paradoxical um, painter in that he, he attracts writers Writers love his work. Novelists love his work. Um, Alan Hollinghurst, Colm Toybean, um, others. Um, there's a whole book of, uh, called Writers on Howard Hodgkin. And, and, um, uh, and so, uh, so we narrativists are drawn to this painter who is, 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 is teasing us with narrative but then refusing it. Um, and so we bash our heads against the wall of meaning, um, enjoyably so. Um, and there's a, there's a, you were quoting Flaubert about, um, about, word, about trying to understand one meaning in another. And, and there are many points uh, um, in this book, I, I, I quote things which you know, he said also, the more, um, the more words there are beside a picture on the, on the wall, the worse the picture. Um, and the, I've, I fill it with quotes from, you know, Matisse, for example, said artists should have their tongues cut out, um, which is very good advice to some living artists, I would say, um, because it has, it has increasingly become the case through the last hundred years or so that that artists from a very young age have to have a narrative about narrative again, about what they're actually doing. And you often feel that the narrative is sort of almost floating free from the art. And it's, it's, it's part, of, part of the publicity that they have to do, or they have to, they feel that they, instead of gradually discovering what it is they do and what it means to them, they seem to have to have a thesis to begin with, some of them. That's, that's, a, that's a downside to it. Um, where were we? We were talking about we were cultural Hodgkin. ambivalence. Yes, too, and, and so and um, and the thing is that um, Hodgkin is a very difficult character to interview. Um, I once did a I once did a conversation with him for um, German Vogue, um, and there, uh, there was a sort of photo spread first and that sort of thing, and um, the conversation was clearly so uninteresting to Vogue in Germany, that they just kept the pictures and dumped the conversation. Um, that was very good for one's amour proper, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, and, and, that's and Hodgkin, uh, also, we, we were talking about this earlier because we both remember it as a sort of key Hodgkin moment. He was on front row and uh, being interrogated by someone who wasn't Mark Lawson, put it that way, and uh, is having a lot of trouble getting anything out of Howard. Um, and eventually, uh, he sort of, in desperation, put together a thesis. He said, well, it seems to me that you, you, know, you sort of see this, and then you do this, and then you do that, and this is, what you, this is what you end up with. And Hodgkin said, but that presupposes that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Which sort of completely cut the feet from, you know... Which is, which is and, and that's ge ge yeah, but it's geniusly disingenuous because he knows exactly what he's doing. He might not know how he's I doing it, but he does know what he's doing, doesn't he? Well, he, he, knows, he knows what brush he wants to use, I suppose, and, and what, what colour, 
But I think it's, um, you know, he takes a long time to do his pictures and, um, and he doesn't always know when they're finished and then they suddenly get finished up quickly. Not because he has a show, but just because he sees how it all pulls together. Um, and I think that there is, I mean, I think I probably know more what I'm doing when I'm writing a novel than he does when he's painting a picture. But, but it's, st it's still the case that in the process of novel writing, you often find towards the end of, 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 of it, when you're almost getting tired with it, something which suddenly locks it all together. Or you think, but if I move that from there right to the front of the book, that would make sense for the whole narrative. So we do and we don't know what we're doing, it seems to me. Um, what about interpretation or controlling interpretation? We know it's impossible d down the, the ages to, to do that. Um, but you, I think, again, it's a very well-made point that um, you talk about, uh, you analyse Roland Barthes' idea or you mention it about the death of the author, but actually I think you make a more interesting point that the viewer and the reader become more powerful with distance from the time that the work of art was produced because in the end we can have great historical research, it's a, it's a wonderful field, but in the end it's how we respond to an object ourselves or culturally at a particular moment in time that, that, that seems fundamentally to matter because the rest can only be speculation, it can be informed speculation, but in the end it is about a personal response to something at a particular moment in time. Yes, it is, and I guess that there are two possible, two different approaches to it. Um, the first is what I call the Edith Wharton approach, uh, a novelist I profoundly admire, um, who used to go on motor tours of France. And she writes brilliantly at one point about going into a cathedral, and she w was not a religious person, and, and having to make a conscious, imaginative effort to put yourself in the position of someone who went into that cathedral 600 years ago, believing everything that uh, was there, reading the stained glass windows as we would now read a novel. Imagine an illiterate person going into a, into a great French cathedral in 13, 1400 or something. It must have been quite astonishing. Mm. And those would have been the only, perhaps would have been the only, apart from sculptures on the outside, the only um, made um, image, pictorial images that they would ever see. I mean, f I mean our, our, we are now so washed through with images that it's, it's hard to imagine how extraordinary that must have been, not least when it, what, it, what those images were telling you was something that anyone, everyone around you who had more education than you did, you having none, uh, would have told you was the absolute truth about life, death, the resurrection, and how you have to behave on earth. Imagine the, impo imagine the power that, that, that's, at the, that's an image of the resurrection or or particularly outside a church, a fresco of the last judgment, heaven and hell. Um, you know, we have our current um, visual images can't compare in impact with that, whatever they do. Um, so uh, approach A is to say, uh, I must use all my imagination to put myself in the position of the person looking at this item, work of art, then. The other is, to say, um, what does it mean to me now? Uh, I don't want all this sort of bookishness and forcing myself into a position to look at something in a way someone would have done several hundred years ago. Um, and I guess that when I go around a gallery and I look at 
an Annunciation or a Nativity or whatever, I don't, not being a religious person, I have not an ounce of thinking this is a visual representa representation of a metaphysical truth. I don't, I don't have that. And I should think most of us don't. And I'm not able, or I can't be bothered, to try and imagine what it would, how the picture would have been to me if I believed. So, um, so the picture would have changed for me from <coughs> through, through generations of viewers, from being um, something that obviously they would have thought it was beautiful. But I, if one tries to put percentage on, you, you'd think maybe they would look at it and they would think this is, the, the response would be 80, 80, 90% religious, 10, 20% aesthetic. Now we look at a picture and we think of it almost entirely 95 to 100% in aesthetic terms. Um, is the act, do they actually, do they balance? Do we actually now have a lot more aesthetic reactions so that we end up with 100% even if we only add up 5% of religious feeling? I don't know the answer to these questions, but it's also true that things which were never art before have turned into art. And that's something I'm quite interested in. And you go into museums and you see, for example, those intensely beautiful uh, cycladic figurines about that high, bleached of color, creamy um, stone, um, always displayed upright, um, which are grave goods from a pre-Christian cycladic civilization. And um, they, their purpose would have been, A, they weren't that color, they, they, they weren't bleached, they would be fully colored. B, they wouldn't be put upright, they would have been laid in the grave horizontally. Um, and C, they would have had a, 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 a religious purpose, which I don't know quite what it was, maybe something to accompany the dead on their journey in the underworld. And so we've completely turned them into these serene, I mean, they remind us of Modigliani, or Modigliani reminds uh, us of them. Um, these serene, beautiful, now vertical, now bleached of color objects, which we get, I get, enormous aesthetic pleasure from. Um, I don't think that's bad, but it's definitely different. Uh, well, and also, that, that they're often, I mean, you mentioned Modigliani, but of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, as you know, there was a strong almost conversation, but you can't quite have a conversation with a dead object because it can't speak back. But oh, you Picasso, Brack, yes. Matisse, yeah. Durant yeah. and others yeah, were yeah. looking hugely at non-Western art, they were yes. looking at ancient yes. art. Yes. And in a sense, aside, from, photo yes. Yes, aside yeah. from photography, it's the great impetus behind, behind modernism. Yes. Um, but uh, I'm interested in, you talk about the, the shift in, in, um, in meaning and, the, and, and the, what the function of objects, but do you think there is a sense that art has now become a surrogate religion, a replacement for many people? It fills the gap that, doesn't, that, that religion would have filled for, for many more people, or is that too reductive? Um, no, I, it's not reductive, but I think it's not, I don't think it is a, I think it, I think it, I think the, the aesthetic sense is a kind of parallel to the spiritual sense, and I don't think that they should, I mean, in a great religious, beautiful religious painting, <coughs> then when it was first viewed, the religious and the, and the aesthetic would be intertwined. Um, now we pay we homage to them as, as shrines in and of themselves rather than what they depict, though, don't we? Yes. Um, but the difference is, I suppose, that in, in the old days, you looked at, you looked at a crucifixion 
and you thought that this was something which guaranteed you eternal life if you behaved well, uh, this story that you were being told. Um, and nowadays, it's the work of art that has the eternity, um, and we don't have, we don't have the, um, the post-death experience. Um, uh, sorry, I've run out. What? No, no. What was I going somewhere? Well, <laughs> I, I thought you were... That presupposes that I know what I'm do, doing. Do, which, which, of course, you do, maestro. <laughs> um, the, 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 um, one of the uh, observations you make about one of the great critics and curators of the last um, two or three decades in British life, anyway, David Sylvester, is mm. his use of the word perhaps yes, um, yes. in the context of Magritte. And you yes. say that perhaps perhapsiness is not a, 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 a value that um, applies across criticism as much as it should do. And I, again, yes. it's something I salute yes. because we do live in a world that wants things affirmed. I mean, the, the, the media seems, although we're part of that, I'm certainly part of that, they seem to want argument, they seem to want people to have certain opinions, and yet our life shows us that things are nuanced, complex, and they often aren't black and white, and art certainly isn't black and white literally or metaphorically. But anyway, um, I'm interested in your view of the perhaps, because you don't use yes. perhaps so much yourself, uh, but, but at the same yeah. time, you are not emphatic about everything. You do explore its complexity and, yes. and nuance. When Pound read the first version of the wasteland. He said to Eliot, "It's too damn perhapsy," <laughs> and, and, and he made Eliot take take the perhapsiness out of it. Um, but as you say, David Sylvester, who is a great critic and also a great hanger, mm. wasn't he? He was. I, I remember, and I described the Magritte show he did at the Hayward, which was an astonishing piece of hanging in one of the most unflattering and unwelcoming spaces, I think, for art that we've managed to construct in our country. Um, and he, and he, yes, he, he writes because Ma, perhaps because Magritte is, is is also an enigmatic artist, and he doesn't want, he's against pinning down meaning. He's he, he's in favour of perhapsness. And there's one paragraph I think in his Magritte book where he just uses uses perhaps about twelve times. Um, it goes back a bit to to the notion that um, that uh, that art nowadays tends to become, to be accompanied by um, an authorial uh, explanation of it by the artist. Um, may I read you something? Please do. Um, it's not by me. Um, this, is, this is an extreme example of what artists, um, and of course it's, uh, it's, it's, it's Mr. Coons of America. Um, one of the most blazingly successful artists of our time. Um, and I um, don't know if... Uh, I mean, I'm sure some people here have been to Bilbao and seen his um, dog, which is covered in flowers. Little, it's a sort of, I don't know the breed. I'm sure someone will know the Terrier. breed. Terrier. That's not a breed. That's a sort of All right, well, there's a general thing. You know, I was going for... Uh, West Highland something or something. I don't know what, <laughs> does anyone know what the breed of that? But uh, doesn't matter really. Anyway, it's a little dog, enormous. I don't know how, 15 feet, 20 feet high? 30 Lit. feet high? Covered in flowers, which always have to be in bloom. So it has to be, um, it has to be shut down at regular intervals while they replant it. It's made from flowers, isn't it? It's not covered in. It's the same way you wouldn't say canvas is covered in paint. The but flowers are the, are the palette. Are the the flowers are the palette, exactly. But it, the flowers are attached to something. And you can go up inside it. Um, 
Uh, I, anyway, um, it, was, it was done for a, a German uh, aristocrat's country house, castle, and within about four or five years, he sold it to the Bilbao uh, Gallery, Bilbao Guggenheim. Brilliant piece of business, I think. Um, anyway, it, but it's wonderful in terms of marketing. Um, and, you, and you get there, and there's this dog covered in flowers, or the dog which is flowers, and you smile, and you buy a postcard of it, and um, uh, next time you go back, it's still there, the same, yeah? Not much difference. Anyway, you think, yeah, that's a balloon. It's a dog made of flowers. No, it isn't. This is what Mr. Kuhn says. Um, outside the Guggenheim in Bilbao, visitors will encounter Puppy, a towering sculpture made of steel and live flowers, which, Kuhn says, quote, helps you have a dialogue about the organic and the inorganic. It's really about issues of the Baroque, where everything is negotiated, the different aspects of the eternal through biology, whether you want to serve or be served, love or be loved, all these types of polarities come into play because puppy helps set them up. Um, which, to use a technical term of art criticism, is bollocks. Now, I know it's like shooting fish in a barrel, well, but sometimes fish should be shot. No, they should. And, and Jeff doesn't need defending, so I'm not particularly going to defend him, but it, nonetheless... The example you've just given is also an example of how a work of art can generate interpretations and so on in the mind of the beholder, or in this case, the artist. In, if that, that wasn't in this artist, case, the it, artist, yeah. yes. But yes. if, but if were, were that a critic or a, a public response and someone said, this is, how it, this is what it makes me think of, yeah. that, that's no more or less valid, is it? Your issue is it's the artist who constructs the narrative around the work and it's too often worshipped rather than eviscerated. It's funny because you don't mention... Did, did, you've well, seen Puppy. Did any yeah. of that make sense to you? No, I have to say, I could make the same kind of tropes over this if you want. Um, I mean, in other well, words... Well, that would be bollocks, too. Yes, of course it would be. No, 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 no I take, exactly. But I, think that, but I think that Coons's work does deal, some, on, on occasion, it might be in, in, trivial, in a trivial way, might be in a profound way, with some of those things. Uh, it's the, 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 the bollocks is in the tone with which it's read and the arch, arch of the eyebrow. It's, I mean, it isn't particularly profound what he says. Um, I don't think it's profound what he does. I think it's very, very simple what he well, does. Th th this, this and th I think it's aimed at a particular sort of client very, very successfully. He was a commodities trader. <laughs> now, now, what is he doing? He's trading commodities. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And, and unlike corn or oil or stuff, Jeff Koons is bound to go up in value. He's on a real winner. Eventually the market may, may pummel. Well, we but hope so. I hope he'll turn out to be the Rosa Bonheur of our time. It's funny because you don't mention that many artists by name when you have your sights on them, except I realise that, that the, it all begins, that the rot sets in. It's not Picasso, who you um, say can be vainglorious, and you've, there's some great remarks about Picasso, but from, from other artists too, yes. not least Brax, that Picasso used to be a great artist, now he's merely a genius. Yes, but, you say, yes. but you do say that Warhol is, as much an art, is an artist in the sense that Fergie is a royal, which I thought was a fantastically <laughs> barbed <laughs> remark. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Julian, are we now going? Will you start writing about Coons, or would you? Would your no. line be, "Look, he's just not interesting enough. I don't want to no, give no, him no, any no, more publicity." No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't write about Coons. Um, um, I, he's not an interesting enough artist for me. Um, I think one of. I think, you know, um, 
One of the tests of art is when you go back and you see it again after 10 years, uh, and you have changed inevitably, um, has the work changed? Um, or do you have exactly the same reaction to it? Um, and that's what I feel about Warhol. I think he's, he's a very skilled technician. I think he was brilliant at the, at the images he chose. Um, deadpan. And he's very de deadpan. And he was exactly an artist for his time. Um, and yet, uh, you look at his work and say, oh, yeah, that's a blue Marilyn, and there's a red one, and there's Elvis. And, um, and you, you sort of go around and you recognize them again, but you have either exactly the same reaction to them as you did the first time, or perhaps a, a lesser one. Um, and that's fine, too. You know, there's room, there's room for a Fergie in the royal family. You know, I'm not... I'm not chucking people out of art. I don't think it's a temple. Mm. I think it's a refugee camp, you know, where everyone's queuing for a bit of water. Um, it's not easy to be an artist. It's not easy even to be a bad artist. It's not easy to do that thing which even bad artists do, which is to establish a particular, you know, voice. Well, that's narrative, that's writers, but a, a particular uh, voice and style which is recognisable. That's something quite difficult to do. Uh, it's what you do thereafter that makes you a good or a great artist. Before I throw you to the floor, there's one... Through to the lions. <laughs> there, is, there is one question, or just one, one thing I just want to take issue with you on. Um, in, in, the, in your essay on Howard Hodgkin, you, it, it's, it's a, a funny aside, but you're talking about a show, I think, at the Royal Academy in 2002 where commercial galleries were, uh, were given, given the space to, to exhibit their, their art for a time. And um, I mean, it was an interesting experiment. It, it wasn't about commerce particularly. It was about showcasing different galleries and, and the yes. kind of artists they represented. And you bump into a well-known critic, and you have a, a sort of arch laugh, and, and, and you said something about looking at some younger painters. Do you think they, 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 um, they have a sense of... The, the, some of the, a lot of this has been done before, and the critic replies, oh, the past has nothing to teach them. Do you really believe that um, many young artists, painters in particular, don't look at and learn from the past? Because I have to say, from my experience, and this is teaching in art schools, but also mm. talking to a lot of artists, is whether they use it well or not, yes. I think that artists, in my experience, generally speaking, artists have a much deeper understanding of the history of their own medium than, say, actors or... Uh, yes, uh, or, or novelists. I would and so they should. So yeah, they should. No, they should know, so I, I understand my art form much better than painters do, and I would hope that they understand their art form better than I do. Um, but... Uh, and, and of course they should be interested in the, in the past um, because what art does, what any art does, as I, I slowly realised as I practised my art for the last 30 years or so, is it's, it's, it's balanced between two things. It's, it's, it's an attempt to make it new and it's a continuing conversation with the past. Maybe that's something, the continuing conversation with the past is something, something that you come to or you realise more sharply as you get older. As a, as a writer, no, I'm delighted that they that they that they are they are going, they're constantly looking and constantly looking, um, but um, in you didn't have any commercial connection to that show. That no, we're talking about good, just checking. Um, but and in the middle there were s s about a dozen Hodgkins which just blazed out. I mean, it was, you know, um, he was better than the others, um, and that's just. Not, uh, see, I'm not. Um, I like some 
I like individual works first, and then I like some uh, contemporary painters. But I, I think, you, you know, you don't see them straight until you've had the whole career in front of you. And some will come back. Some have gone off terribly. Some start well, then go off. And you hope that they have a, a, late, a late renaissance, a late flowering. You, uh, there's a brilliant quote, which I can't quite remember, but it, it, you, t you talk about the selection of masterpieces. And I think it, it's, it's a, a French curatorial justification is something about simplifying an artist's modernity by um, a sort of iconographic register. Mm, and uh, mm, which is mm. brilliant French doublespeak or bollocks to use your Kunzian <laughs> phrase but, but it, it does raise the point that of course curators and I've been guilty of this in the past you, you know you want to select the best work you want to tell a particular story in a particular way but often it's not an accurate one it's, it's partial we all always admit the stories are partial to a certain extent when you um, come to curate your Valaton show um, and in the co curate and in the in your essay you talk about there's an extraordinary range of quality in yes, yes, will yeah. you will you want to show the bad and the good or will you no. want to select something around the best of quality as as there's never been a show of Valentin's paintings in this country ever um, there's only there's only ever been a travelling arts council show of his woodcuts my approach and i my co curator Andy Mass agrees is that we just get the best stuff we can and um, this would be a, an outrage in France because you have to have a narrative. And, and I'm sure we will find a narrative for you at the RA of sorts. But, but, but essentially, you, you want to say, this is an, this is, there's only one, uh, there's only one Valentin in a public collection uh, in Britain, and it's in the Tate, and it was given by his brother after his death, and they'd almost never shown it. Um, so this will be the first show ever, and I think we should just make it as strong as possible. And that strength will construct its own narrative. You know, people can come along and make their own narrative out of it and, and, and will respond differently to different parts. I agree. But I will also accuse you of simplifying his modernity through um, having his iconographic register. I will have to live with your accusations, you will. You will. Mr. Marlowe. Which would be odd, given that I'm the Artistic Director of Royal Academy, criticising my own exhibition would be a, a good thing to do. It would be blood on the floor. It would. But, but obviously, it's the Jeff Koons show I'm going to get you to curate that I really want to sort of Yeah, yeah. Right, let's, questions to the floor. There are microphones, so if you, just, if you could put your hand up and then wait for the microphone to come around. Uh, just at the, in the middle back there. Hello. Um, your earlier conversation reminded me about something that Picasso said about making art, which was, uh, if you know exactly what you're going to do, what's the point of doing it? Um, and it reminded me about painting myself that, not painting myself, but painting myself, uh, which is that you hope you're going to get into a, a state of mind or a zone where the painting starts to tell you what it wants next. And I wondered in uh, writing prose, writing books, does that happen to you, that you get into a sort of mindset where the book's almost writing itself? Oh, I wish I could. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a... There's a there's a, great, there's a sort of um, spread in how writers um, think about their characters and the, and the plot that those characters give them. Uh, at the one end, there's the, there are writers who said, oh, my characters just took over, you know. And at the other end, there's the Nabokov line, which is, he said, my characters are there waiting like galley slaves to be whipped. <laughs> <laughs> Um, being a liberal, I'm in the middle position, you know. Um, I th that my, 
I, I, th I think I know what I'm doing much of the time. Um, and sometimes the writing just does take off. Um, but that's more because you've already prepared the ground for it, I think. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it's all going when I start. I know a percentage of it. It would be very boring if you knew it all. Then it would be like painting by numbers. Um, I think writers have very different approaches to it. Um, I remember the American novelist John Irving once saying that he, uh, he always started with the very final scene so that he knew what he was working his way towards. Um, but I often, I often start at the best bit, or I start at the sort of... Uh, the best in terms of you know where the central argument or the central moral position of the book is, is. and then I, I move around it or I start in several different places and I, and I very rarely find that the start of the book is the first is what I think the start of the book is usually it evolves as I was saying earlier and you, you suddenly see oh yes I put that at the start You've spoken quite a bit about Howard Hodgkin, yes. who's um, a notoriously slow artist, takes a great length of time. Is, is that how you write? Do you take a great length of time over your works, or are you constantly redrafting, or is it just a complete work as it oh, emerges? No. Oh, I wish. Um, no, I mean, I take between two and three years to write a novel, and, and most, most writing is rewriting. Um, Flaubert said, hair, pro prose is like hair, it shines with combing. So <laughs> there are an awful lot of, of, sort of you know, nits and split ends <laughs> in, 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 in a first draft, um, and, and, and you have to get rid of a lot of them. Um, but I think each book, uh, when I, I, I sort of know roughly how long, now, now I've written a number of books, I know roughly how long each should, should ideally take to write, because I made a terrible mistake with my first novel, which is a very short novel, and it took about six or seven years to write, and by the time I'd finished it, I was so, I was a bit bored with it, and that means it's rather hard to change it, and it has to be kept, a lot. you have to, every novel has an organic life, and you have to recognise how long that life is, and when it's coming to an end, and so you have to, you have, it's partly, you know, time management as well. Um. It's interesting you say Howard Hodgkin's a slow writer. In, from the book, he's a very speedy viewer of works of art. Julian and his wife are kind of still in the opening room while Hodgkin's been through the, the, the museum and comes back to take them to the two or three pictures he thinks are worth doing, which is an experience I have with Luke Toymans. Maybe it's what artists do, they filter and they, they, they go to what interests yeah, them. Yeah, and there's a, there's a story of Brach. Uh, what Brach used to do. Brach was, Brach, Brach, I don't think Brach knew the Italian Renaissance very well, but he said early on, he said, I've had it up to here with Italian art, you know. Um, he was only interested, that's also the thing between both writers and artists. There are some who want to be inter or interested in the whole lot, and there are some who only take mm. what they need. Mm. And Brach was very much a take, I take what you need. And he used to go, when he went to galleries, he'd send Madame Brack inside first to find out if something that <laughs> <laughs> was worth his attention. <laughs> um, and it's always rather, it's, it's, you know, as you can do that if you're Brack. Um, but if you're a lesser artist, perhaps you should look at it yourself, I think. Let's go. Yeah, here in the foreground, and then gentlemen over there. Um, I just wondered, 
Do you think that it's the ultimate goal of, I don't know, the reader or the viewer to discover the artist's intentions, or should we all try to be like the 18-year-old Julian Barnes who just thought whatever he wanted to think and... Can I just say that we should all be like the 18-year-old Julian Barnes? <laughs> <laughs> just, it's an aspiration. I, I wish I was. I, w <laughs> I wish I was. Anyway, um, well, I don't, think you, I don't think you read a novel to discover the author's intentions. You read a novel to discover what happens and how true it is to life and what resonance it has. Um, it's a good question though, because do you have an intention? I mean, it presupposes that you have a, an intention. Well, I have an intention to write the novel. Yeah, but, but not the way it's but interpreted. I don't, you see, I don't have an intention to say at length something that could be said more briefly. <laughs> you know, you, you don't, you can't, you know, you can't boil it down to a Christmas cracker motto or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole thing there which is a, a process of, uh, which involves a process of reading uh, a narrative in its own way, uh, a narrative of being read. Um, and you hope for not necessarily even a verbal response, but just a sort of nod. Uh, Degas said that all words about painting were a waste of time and that you just had to look at it and you'd say, humph, hey, ha. And that was all that needed to be said. Now, if you got to the end of one of my novels and you said, humph, hey, ha, that'd be fine by me, you know. Um, it's not, it's, 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 it reminds me of when I was first being taught literature and you were taught a poem and, or a novel and, and it was all broken down into categories, you know. There was... There was, you know, there was tone, there was style, there was metaphor, blah, blah, blah. And, and that made us think that this is how the writer approached it in the first place, that it was sort of box ticking and that you had to have all these things and all your, your, your cherries in a row and the machine and then bingo. Um, that's not the right metaphor. <laughs> you don't play bingo on a slot machine, do you? Or maybe you do. But... Um, the point is that, 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 and I'm sure it's the same for, for painters, that, it's an, it, that it's, it really is an organic process. Um, it's, it, you don't think, um, oh, you, occasion, you occasionally have a sort of overall sense, you know. Um, uh, Flaubert said of Madame Bovary, he wanted it to be a kind of grey colour, rather mouldy in colour. Um, which has nothing to do with the book in one sense, and yet it's absolutely central to it. He wanted to slightly smell of mould, which is wonderful. Um, uh, I don't think of books in terms of colours much, but, but you have a sense of their, of their sort of specific gravity, the, uh, a certain moral weight to them, or um, you think of things like that, and, and you have to keep that feel and that level in them. It's, uh, is what I think. Um, but I, I mean, obviously there are some poems, short, short stories, which have a sort of secret which has to be found. I mean, Kipling was famous for taking out a key element in a short story in order to give it a mystery. And it works wonderfully well. And then you have to sort of, if you're interested, it works wonderfully well as a mystery and we should be satisfied with the mystery. But if you want to, you can you can try and find what that bit he's taken out is and put it back for yourself. Um, I think that's enough, don't you? <laughs> Thank you. 
Sounds like what happens when you come to the end of an essay, as it were. With the Howard Hodgkin, you said, that's enough words. Um, most of the essays feel about the same length, and I, real, I then realised that it's probably because you were commissioned, particularly for Modern Painters was one of the, the, the sources. Were you, were you given a brief to write as much as you wanted, or was it a piece of 5,000 words? No, no, I usually... I, I, I was greatly supported by Modern Painters, and I lament the fact that the magazine has decamped to America and doesn't commission me anymore. Um, it's not as good a magazine either. But thank you. Uh, after I left. Um, and... Uh, no, mostly, I mean, uh, I've, I've been a journalist as long as I've been a novice, longer. Mm. And I have, um, mostly commissioning editors are very generous, and they say, you know, go and look at it, and, and, and then the, the wordage comes later. But I do, I, you know, I am, I'm not a professional art critic. These, these pieces are meant to be conversational with the reader, companionable with the reader. This is my take on this, and I feel that I generally have one take on each artist, that I, that I probably say my say on Manet or Bonnard, and that I haven't got another say in me. But that's all right, you know. One more question, very briefly. The gentleman there, with his, waving his hand there. Ah, where's shout the, it. Where's the, the microphone? The mic's there, sorry, thank you. Microphone's to Camp uh, You're in Scotland. Is there any Scottish artist who turns you on at all? <laughs> 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 I'm not going to give away secrets. But this was a question that we wondered whether it would happen. Douglas Gordon. Bellamy exhibition at the Open Eye Gallery. Shostakovich was once flying back from America and the plane was diverted to Sweden. And uh, he was met very warmly by a group of Swedish composers. And they said, who are your favorite Swedish composers? (laughs) And his mind froze. And then he came up with a name and at the last minute, um, he realised that it was a Norwegian composer. <laughs> but but the but the Swedish um, the the Swedish uh, um, composers were very forgiving. And the next day, um, in his hotel room, he found a stack of gramophone records <laughs> of um, of Swedish composers. So I shall look in my hotel room tomorrow morning. <laughs> On which note, um, we should end. Um, I should say ho-ha-hum, but actually I want to thank you, Julian, very much, and thank you very much. There will be a signing in the adjacent tent. Can I also thank our sponsor, the Hawthornden Literary Retreat, for supporting this event. Julian Barnes, thank thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.